listening to Bikini Drive-In on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Our mission is to analyze horror and science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism, and women and gender studies. Our knowledge and experience will hopefully provide you with access points to feminist theory, art history, and film critique while using horror and science fiction genres as a site of discourse. Since we will be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, content warning, listener discretion is advised, etc. Also, spoilers ahead. Our third werewolf movie will be we will be discussing Joe Dante's nineteen eighty one film The Howling. We've got to be We've got to warn people. What do you see? The Howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. What do you see? What's that? What do you see, Karen? What's that? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. Do I even start? The film <laughs> throws you into the middle of this very wild narrative. <laughs> so the howling follows news anchor Karen White, who is played by Dee Wallace. And she's being stalked by a serial killer named Eddie Quist. Um, they, she has a plan to capture Eddie, which has been formulated with some real police force duds. And it goes awry. No surprise. And uh, PTSD-stricken Karen is sent to a remote seaside resort uh, by her therapist, Dr. George Wagner. Her husband, Bill, who, according to Olivia, looks like a stubbed toe, accompanies her. (laughs) This colony, um, which is what the resort is called, is a place where Dr. Wagner often sends his patients. And it is amok with weirdos cooking steaks on the beach. Um, (laughs) There is also a sultry nymphomaniac named Marsha. Who is working to seduce Bill the Toe? Bill resists her forward advances and is scratched on the arm by a mysterious hairy creature while returning to his cabin. The colony might just be home to werewolves. Thinking, or sorry, following the attack on Bill, Karen gets her pal Terry Fisher, I love Terry, mm-hmm. to come visit the colony. As Terry is smart and up to date on the Eddie Quist stalking situation, she's just in the loop. She is the one to make a crucial connection between Quist 
and the colony using a charcoal sketch found in Quist's really messy and stinky apartment. <laughs> the werewolf situation grows more and more aggressive, culminating in Bill the Toes full on transformation while doing it with Marsha. And it's a super memorable and hilarious scene. Um, and also then Terry's death by werewolf stalker Eddie Quist. Sad. Meanwhile, Terry's partner, Chris Halloran, has been gathering silver bullets and heads to the colony to save people and shoot members of the werewolf cult. Evil Eddie Quist confronts Karen and he has this very cool and bubbling transformation into a wild beast. Karen hucks this corrosive acid on his face and runs. Meanwhile, Chris with the silver bullets has finally arrived at the colony. He runs into a really badly messed up Eddie and shoots him. Quis, Quis? <laughs> Chris quickly realizes that everyone at this dang colony is a werewolf and he goes off with a gun. Karen and Chris are the lone survivors and they burn the entire colony to the ground by using a good old lock in a barn and pour gasoline <laughs> on everything <laughs> trick. Karen feels it's her duty to warn the world about the reality of werewolves and surprises her colleagues by transforming into the cutest, fluffiest, like Pomeranian style werewolf oh, ever on yeah. live television. And she has a single tear and it's really, that's it's news. Sad. That's yeah. some real news. She is shot by Chris well in front of this live viewing audience and the world is left to wonder whether the transformation is real or if it's all just a bogus special effect trick, magic trick. So aware of itself. The final scene of the film features a sultry Marsha, our friend, who has apparently escaped the colony. And she's watching this news broadcast and eating. Oh, no, she's not eating. She just ordered a rare hamburger. <laughs> the end. Oh, da -da -da. God. Olivia. What was your first experience with the howling? Uh, I first saw this movie a few years ago after um, some pals in Movie Village recommended it to me. Hi, Carl. <laughs> uh, then you and I watched together last night for yeah, the show. That, that was fun. Uh, I feel like this movie <laughs> has so many things that I like. Werewolves, D. Wallace, Practical Effects by my boyfriend, Rob Button. He's a genius. Oh, love him. And, but for some <laughs> reason, this movie just does not work for me. It just kind of devolves into this deep dive about a swinger werewolf summer camp. Mm -hmm. And the soundtrack is just Adam's Family Harpsichord. <coughs> I just don't, don't like it. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. yeah. How about you? Yeah. I first saw the film a while back, and I've returned to it again and again, trying to get through it, and I always fall asleep after that delightful little <laughs> sex scene that always makes me giggle. Um, yeah, I always just pass out. So I finally finished the night with you and it made me really regret all of the hours of my life attempting to watch that dang sexy <laughs> scene because the rest of the movie, not that great. Except for the very last scene. <laughs> the very last scene. Yeah. yeah. It was tender. But yeah. other than that, it's like, come on. Yeah. Come on, Hollywood. Um, one thing that is really nice about the film, the special effects are pretty freaking beautiful there's some really nice practical effect moments um such as when terry chops off a werewolf hand and it has this bizarre kind of deflated balloon transformation into a human hand and it's mesmerizing mm -hmm. i love that i love that scene um all of the werewolf transformations as well are really incredible and also really humorously long <laughs> like whoever they'd be trying to attack could be long gone while they're still standing there like moaning and sprouting mm -hmm. hair and you know, wiggling on the floor, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, Eddie's transformation, though, was, like, pretty pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Raw Button used air bladders under latex, and it gets this really cool That's effect. So cool. You, yeah, you can kind of see the sort of, like, beginning of, or similar traits from to the thing 
mm. especially with the arm getting chopped off. Yeah. Like it's how the arm is almost like a separate entity to this other, yeah. for the rest of the body. Yeah. I'd love to know how he views the body. Like knowing that all of these, like, like a single hair could like transform into, mm-hmm. you know, like everything has this like wild kind of like life. It's imaginative and, and yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. It's so ooey gooey. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. Werewolves and vampires. Similarities. Yeah. So yeah, this film has a kind of has a vampire feel to me. Maybe it's because it's so much of the plot is about, you know, repression, seduction, <coughs> and then sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're both very uh, rapey creatures. <laughs> yeah, it's really they're cool. I have to say, about tricking people that. and seducing them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tricky, mm-hmm. tricky, tricking repressed people. Yeah, repression is a problem. <laughs> Um, this film has lots of references. <laughs> uh, it's a tre- treasure trove of mm-hmm. werewolf references from like, there's the big bad wolf by, uh, what's his name? Oob, Oob, Oobie works. How do you say his name? He's the, he's the dude who, uh, like invented Mickey Mouse. Oh cool. yeah. So, and he, there's like playing, there's that little boy blue film it's from 1936 and there's that big bad wolf character and it can be seen on the tv in a bit there's a copy of alan ginsburg's howl on chris's desk not about werewolves however mm-hmm. beautiful literature nonetheless yeah. um there's also a mention of wolfman jack there's little red Riding hood and it's actually there's a little fun film fact the bookstore scene features a mummified grandma sitting in an armchair that was in the attic <coughs> of the house in the original texas chainsaw massacre film I love that. I yeah, love all I love the werewolf references, like wolf chili on a, a can of wolf chili on the fridge. I it's, love that. It's very silly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the set dresser for this film was really having fun. Totally. And even if the plot really falls apart and it's like the writing isn't that great to me, it seems like such a fun movie to work on in terms of design and special effects. Totally. I would have to agree. I also have a quote here by Isabel Pinedo for, from her book, Recreational Terror, Women and the Pleasures of Horror Film Viewing. Mm. Um, so discussing... The Howling, playing on older audience members' knowledge of horror films, the characters in The Howling, a film about New Age werewolves, watch the 1941 version of The Wolfman. In addition, characters in The Howling are named after directors of other werewolf films. George Wagner, The Wolfman, Terry Fisher, The Curse of the Werewolf, 1960. It includes among the cast, it includes among the cast, Kevin McCarthy, who played the lead in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956, Forrest Ackerman, former editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and director-producer Roger Corman. So yeah, just cool, like... Cool. So aware of itself. Yeah. So yeah. cute. So cute. Such a fun, nerdy film, probably, mm. to be working on. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell that I feel like the people working on it really are horror fans, you know? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, both the previous two Werewolf Month um, films that we covered, uh, An American Werewolf in London and Ginger Snapsed, used lycanthropy as a metaphor for puberty and hormonal shifts. The howling seems to use it as a vehicle to illustrate release from repression. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first line in the film is repression is the father of neuroses and the colony where the wolf people seem to function. Uh, it's, it's this example of those who live beyond this like white waspy life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of comparisons in the film to kind of quote-unquote like man versus beast ideas granted this was made in 1981 and every time now you hear man versus beast it just like makes you want to barf but yeah, snooze. yeah yeah but this film has a lot of that mm-hmm. and then the internal struggle of like deep emotional torment and and uh society's 
barriers mm-hmm. and rules, restrictions. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I, it's interesting thinking of that and then a character like Marsha, who, I mean, I don't know, part of me feels like she has the balance worked out. Obviously, she's like meant to be on the wild side of that mm-hmm. binary. Yeah. But at the end, when she's just like sitting in that bar and ordering a rare burger, which looks not very good, but yeah. like whatever, <laughs> she's just living it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, kind of interesting to think of it as like, repression but then also repression within relationships and people not getting mm. what they actually want out of relationships especially when you look at karen and bill yes. who are obviously like not communicating he doesn't really believe her and just how she mentions she's like oh we're we, we're not in sync we don't want the same things at the same time mm-hmm. and then he goes to marcia to marcia for that it's just it's interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The communication Everybody, is this film about communication yeah. and relationships? <laughs> 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 is that what is that what werewolves are about? Yeah, that that's the, what that's, werewolves are about. That's the metaphor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe this movie has too many metaphors, or it does or not? <laughs> it has too much of something. It's, yeah, too much. It's I think, yeah. We were talking about this yeah. yesterday. Like, it would have been cool if it had just focused on Marsha's point of view. Yeah, because her right. story is cool. Like, she wants the colony just sort of go back to this like traditional way of life of being predators and like living in the woods. And then, or if it had been from Terry's point of view, as she's like trying to solve this murder case and link it to the colony, that would have been cool. Or just Karen dealing with her PTSD and her sort of like lackluster relationship with her stub toe of a husband. Like just, (laughs) it's just too much. Yeah. And so therefore nothing really gets, yeah, nothing gets dissected or discussed. Yeah, dealt with because yeah. it's all just it's kind of superficial, mm-hmm. truly floating around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting you bring up the bit about Marsha and the attachment to the land. There mm-hmm. is this line that Bill the Toe says to Karen mm-hmm. when she's she's afraid of animal noises mm-hmm. or what seem to be animal sounds outside the window, and he shushes her, stating that she doesn't know basically the wind from a creature because she grew up in whatever downtown LA mm-hmm. or something like that. And you can see these tensions in the colony between the city slickers who come there for treatment and the people who are just living their lives out Mm -hmm. in the country Mm -hmm. um, where the wilderness for them is not a place that privileged people go to for healing or to get away from the daily grind. Like that environment is just their life. So there is this uh, exoticization or, or something of Mm -hmm. of country life. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know. We still see that a lot today. Mm -hmm. And then this city country conflict is reflected in the repression release nature of the various types of characters in the Mm -hmm. film so many dichotomies and yeah it's, it's very clearly seen between Marsha mm-hmm. and Karen and I wonder if too if this plays into when the film was made and city living was really booming with most movie audiences living in the suburbs uh, and then thinking of like the hills have eyes mm-hmm. and deliverance also focus on that like access of thought of the country is scary and people living off the grid mm-hmm. and growing their own tomatoes are evil <laughs> like how dare they yeah, it's a sort of othering that really just kind of divides. And I do, I can't, I wonder too what the connection with that and like, I don't know, is there like draft dodger situations would be oh, in that time yeah, too where totally. there is this like shaming or othering of folks who, you know, feel the need to not live in certain environments. Mm-hmm. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. That's an incomplete thought, but. No, that's cool. <laughs> uh, I'll allow it. <laughs> I think also too, like, it maybe because of the time, but it's like it 
it's almost like an easy choice to make it like Marsha versus Karen. Like, totally. like they barely even speak to to each other, and they're like the main yeah rivals. I guess it's also film. such a Betty and Veronica thing. Oh, truly, classic, boring. <laughs> um, so this film, rather than I mean, I want to know about werewolf bureaucracy. Yeah, that's, that's the movie I, I want to watch. Right? <laughs> uh, so this film can be categorized as what Stacy Ponder of Gaylords of Darkness fame uh, describes as a town with a secret movie. Mm. So some examples are Dead and Buried, Lost Boys, which this movie reminded me of the Lost Boys. Like when you see the sheriff is turning into a wolf, I'm like, ooh, Lost Boys feel. Mm. Um, the Wicker Man, House of Wax. They usually involve an House outsider. Yeah. They usually involve a, an outsider, sometimes city folks, discovering that everybody in a small town is in on a terrible secret that nobody outside the town must know. The visiting protagonist slowly begins to, begins to suspect that something is wrong. The secret doesn't have to be super supernatural. It can be something as mundane as a murder cover-up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, that totally falls into that category. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we covered psychoanalysis a little bit while discussing gender snaps last week. But I think that the three main women in the film, so Marsha Quist, Terry Fisher, and Karen White, fit perfectly into the psychoanalytic pers- uh, personality theory of id, ego, and superego. Super so according to Freud's model of the psyche, the id is the primitive and instinctual part of the mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives and hidden memories. The id operates on the pleasure principle, which is the idea that every wishful impulse should be satisfied immediately, regardless of the consequences. So to me, Marcia Quist represents the id as she's sexual, impulsive, and solely focused on achieving immediate gratification. develops to uh, mediate between the unrealistic id and the external real world. It is a decision-making component of personality. Ideally, the ego works by reason, whereas the id is chaotic and unreasonable. The ego operates according to the reality principle, working out realistic ways of satisfying the id's demands, often compromising or postponing satisfaction to avoid negative consequences of society. The ego considers social realities and norms, etiquette, and rules in demanding in deciding how to behave. Terry falls into this category as she's positioned between Marsha and Karen while immersed within the reality and facts surrounding the murder cases. Uh, Terry is the only character following logic and reason to solve the case of Eddie Quist. Quist, Marsha. Quist, TC. Oh, Christopher. It's Eddie. The superego incorporates the values and morals of society, which it, which are learned from one's parents and others. The superego's super function is to control the id's impulses, especially those which society forbids, such as sex and aggression. 
It also has the function of persuading the ego to turn to moralistic goals rather than simply realistic ones and to strive for perfection. The superego is the ethical component of the personality and provides the moral standards by which the ego operates. So throughout the film, especially at the colony, Karen is positioned as uptight and judgmental of everyone in the camp. Um, and then Karen's morality is shown in the final scene of the film, where she purposefully transforms into a werewolf on air as a warning and a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But I have to, and tonight I'm going to sh- show you something. Make you believe. <laughs> What is this? Wow! What are you kids watching? The newsletter's turned into a werewolf. Oh boy. La mujer se cambió en un lobo. Things I do with special effects these days. Did you see the one about the guy in the spaceship? It was real. He turned into a werewolf and they shot her. You're plastic. Doesn't mean it wasn't real. Hey, Ernie, put a pepper steak on for me, will you? And a hamburger for the lady. How do you want that? How do you want it, honey? Rare. Poor Karen. Oh, poor Karen. That was, yeah, that's the most emotion that she showed the entire oh, no. film. She's devoid of emotion. Love yeah, she's great. Um, in my, something that I have been researching a lot while working on Werewolf Month, or not <laughs> researching a lot, but a little bit, <laughs> is the idea of female werewolves. So often werewolves are, are like a very masculine monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and addressing, yeah, like, I don't know, male puberty and male hormones and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And so I came across an article by Jasmina Sininas, and I'm totally probably butchering your name, sorry. Uh, but it discusses female werewolves and their connections to the suffragette movement. Uh, she goes on to talk about the story of White Fell. White Fell is a protagonist of The Werewolf, which is a novella written in 1896 by Clemens Hausman. And White Fell represents a vivacious, beautiful, seductive female spirit which can't be defeated by normal means whatever that means um it's a werewolf story from victorian gothic literature basically Mm -hmm. warning men that love and lust can be destructive and that women are dangerous be careful especially when you're on the rag (laughs) look out lunar cycles watch your tone uh anyways jasmina discusses the burst of stories uh such as this that were most likely fueled by the paranoia surrounding the suffragette movement, mm-hmm. women getting rowdy. Wanting to vote and to have jobs and to be taken seriously. Rights. Yeah. How dare they? Yeah. 
human rights. The werewolf sisterhood in the book, uh, they prey on families in which they can append the gendered status quo. They also invert contemporary were- werewolf conventions by returning to their shaggy wolf selves when killed, mm-hmm. um, revealing their true lupine animalistic selves. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to trace the history of Marsha's relatives, <laughs> yeah. um, women who have kind of existed as these ravenous man-eaters, mm-hmm. but also nurturing figures where their mothers or or Marsha's a sister who cooks and, and seems to care for her brothers, mm-hmm. um, while also being, yeah, these demonic wolf creatures. Yeah, and she also cares for the colony. She like does. She wants She's what's like best the, for them. She's the matriarch, arguably. Basically, yeah. 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 Where's Marsha's movie? I know, hey. <laughs> Right, get get on the email. Get on the horn. Uh, anyway, that's our show this week. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. Uh, you can listen to Bikini Drive-In every Sunday at 4.30 on CKW 95.9 FM. You can... Oh, we have a Facebook page now. Yeah, thank so, you, Olivia, oh, for yeah. hooking up. Dealing and dealing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's just Bikini Drive-In on Facebook. Um, you can send us an email at bikinidrivein at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions or if you like werewolves or have questions questions we love your questions yeah yeah more more listener questions would be appreciated um would be appreciated appreciated. (laughs) anyway thanks so much thank you bye
You're listening to CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Our frequency celebrates diversity.